0: podcast
1: has bad words hello patreon this is the minimalist private podcast i'm here sort of by myself but sort of not i'm here with podcast sean and jordan no more we're gonna talk about favorite books we're gonna answer a bunch of surprise questions but let's kick it off with some more about less the article i have here today is something that uh, podcast sean sent to me And well, of course I'm not gonna read the whole thing here. It's called the 50 best bookstores in all 50 states. This is from Mental Floss. We'll put a link to it in the show notes if you wanna check it out for your state. Sean, what stood out to you about this? I saw a few on here that I totally agree with. Like, um, well, I don't know, Jordan, you're the Phoenix native. So maybe you could tell me, but the best bookstore in Arizona is Changing Hands, which I agree with, but it's because I've done, I think we've done three tour stops there and it's a phenomenal bookstore it's a it's a weird space to do a book tour stop but honestly most bookstores are have you been there even what is it called it's called changing hands oh no i've never been yeah it's in tempe 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 arizona yeah tempe right outside of phoenix um anytime we do a a tour stop there but um for some reason uh oh it has locations in phoenix and tempe okay um Sean, what stood out to you in this list? Because I can disagree with some some things here.
0: Well, there were some familiar ones to me. Uh, the oh. the uh, the Strand in New York City.
1: Yeah, the Strand.
0: That's a that's a really uh, really cool uh, bookstore. Hopefully, they aren't going to have any. I mean, with COVID and everything, right? Everyone's really suffering, especially independent ones. Right? It's really hard to stay afloat.
1: The Strand had a Ryan and I in 2013. We did uh, for everything that remains. Um, we did so every everything that remains came out in 2014 January 1 2014 but uh, we wrote the first draft in 2012 2013 we did a media event for everything that remains in New York City and there's a bookstore there a non-profit bookstore I don't know why I'm blanking on name but it's my my favorite bookstore in uh in Manhattan and I'll find it for you eventually here but at the same day, you know, Carl uh, Ove Knafsgard, he he wrote that that series called My Struggle. Have you you've seen this? It's the oh, most popular right. selling book in Norway. Right. Okay. Yeah, and so uh, I've tried three times to to read that. I I own it. It's on my shelf, and it's not for lack of trying, uh, but I. I eventually I'm going to have to just give that away because I've had so many people that that I know so many people who really love the experience of, of that book and enjoy the, the, the book, but they, I don't know. It just doesn't translate to me. It's so banal, but it's supposed to be, I mean, it's very matter of fact, I guess it's technically fiction, but it's very autobiographical. He's on the cover of all the books. It's a six part series and we're talking, Six. they're not small no either, they're right? eight hundred page books but they're very they're very literal is they're not metaphorical it's him describing the pin that's on the table next to the coffee cup on the table and the, the table on the room on the hardwood floor next to the panels and the yeah it, it's just hundreds and hundreds of pages of banality and i i have not been able to get into it maybe it's Mm. it's me maybe there's also a thing where i think books need to enter your life at a particular period of time for it to resonate i know hemingway is your favorite author right yeah well that was one. he was the one that
0: really connected with me right in high school because at least it's been my experience it seems like most males right once we get out of school we typically don't read again Compared to females. This is, yeah, yeah, speaking broadly.
1: Yeah, it's, well, the stats back that up. Yeah, the stats, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, But that was the first author that really uh, spoke to me because a lot of the stuff that I'd read prior to that when I was in, like, high school and and, and before that, I mean, other than juvenilia, like Franklin W. Dix and the Hardy Boys and stuff like that. Sure. uh, Was, um, you know, reading a lot of really, like, thick stuff. Uh, like James Fenimore Cooper, you know, *Last of the Mohicans*, and mm-hmm. a lot of uh, uh, rom- the um, actually naturalists, right? I'd be the naturalists who describe like everything in uber detail. And it just lost me. And Hemingway was the first time where it was like he stripped everything down. He's a minimalist. Yeah, yeah. to the uh, bare essentials. Yeah,
1: it, for sure. And it, there's an irony in that you know David Foster Wallace is my my favorite author of all time. The the person I'm most inspired by, but he, he's in many ways a maximalist. And uh, but I think in, there's this there's this. He's a weird mix, though, right? Because right. I don't
0: know that I would call him a maximalist necessarily. Because
1: if you read David Foster Wallace's stuff, uh-huh. there's not a wasted word. That's exactly right. And so, in a it's perverse way, he's he's a minimalist. Yeah. Because while he has these sweeping thousand-page books like Infinite Jest, which we'll talk about, he uh, every page is gorgeous, mm-hmm. and that's what is impressive about it. If you have a thousand-page book and you can open up to any page, and and we're, in fact, we're going to do that today. Uh, I'm going to even read to you about, I'm going to read you really boring texts that he makes beautiful. So that'll be fascinating. But um, this bookstore list, I'm looking at Montana and of course the best bookstore in Montana is not in Bozeman, it's in Missoula. Although the country bookshelf is a fine bookstore in Bozeman, Mm. but Shakespeare and co, which got an honorable mention. uh, I would have put that. Yeah. Of course, Shakespeare. Shakespeare yeah. Now, I'm, I'm biased because I think we've done three tour stops there. And yeah. we've done, you know, it was amazing uh, how much community support we got from Missoula when we first moved there. Our first tour stop was, was 2012, uh, no, 2013, early 2013. No, it was 2012, I think. We, were, we did the holiday happiness tour. We did 10 cities and we finished up in Missoula and we hadn't even moved to Missoula yet. We were still living out in that cabin out two Phillips. hours away from Missoula, Phillipsburg, Phillipsburg yeah. yeah. Uh, side of a mountain, middle of nowhere. But the Perfect Missoula- place
0: to write and read. Though.
1: That was exactly right? it. We, we, you know, the-, <laughs> the Isolation. We, strangely, though, we had, we got wifi. We, uh, because, you know, you and I worked for the phone company once upon a time, and I knew some arbitrary laws where I got the phone, because there was a telephone pole at the house there was no wires run to it but there was a there's a law if there's a telephone pole there, they, the phone company has to run wires to it mm. and so uh we got the phone company come out run wires now the internet was was just dog crap <laughs> it was terrible uh but uh it's some connection there. Yeah, so the civilization. Bo- Boston Globe called it um, like Henry, Henry David Thoreau, but with Wi Fi. And I I, I only re- am remembering that verbatim because it's the quote on the front of Everything That Remains, which is what we wrote when we were out in that cabin in the middle of nowhere. And Ryan would go out to the there was a, a little town there called Phillipsburg. There's one traffic light, thirty four hundred square miles, and what's there, the population of Phillipsburg? Eight hundred yeah. and twenty. Eight hundred twenty. Yeah, and that's with the two of you. Right, yeah, it was 818 <laughs> before us. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, he would go to the little, there's five bars and five churches, and that's about it in this town, which to, get, tells a you- A bookstore in Pittsburgh? Gosh, no, no. <laughs> they, they had a little hardware store yeah. with also like these, and so he, we actually bought a desk that was $3. So this cabin we got was furnished, and when I say furnished, there was literally a couch, a table, a, 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 a coffee table, a dining room table, two beds. And, and that was it. Wow. And so I had the upstairs, it wasn't really upstairs, it was like a loft sort of bedroom. And we bought this $3 desk and, and about 50 cents worth of screws and screwed the whole thing together. Ryan and I were like dead broke, but we, we made it work in this little cabin in the middle of nowhere. It was, but the fire, we had to keep the fire going in order to stay warm. So it is the Thoreau thing, except I didn't have my mom doing my laundry, laundry for me, uh, like Thoreau did. <laughs> Uh, but we, you know, we were hanging up laundry out there, we had the fire going, and that's cool for a winter. But it, you wake up and it's negative 26 degrees, and you decide, like, this is a nice experiment. We found ourselves gravitating toward Missoula, it was a, a nice college town, it was the, the big city in western Montana with about 70,000 people. And so, yes, definitely Shakespeare and Company is uh, an amazing bookstore, yeah. one of my favorites in, in the whole country,
0: and that's the um. Sorry, uh, with Garth, who runs. Yeah, he uh, owns. Yeah, owns and runs uh, Shakespeare and Company. Uh, I think, and you and I kind of talked about this a little bit with the independent bookstores and um, a lot of folks that we were talking about with on the minimal, uh, where they said, I just, you know, have all these books and I'm just not getting around to reading these books. Yeah. And I think the some of the, one of the benefits of befriending uh, an owner operator of an independent bookstore is once they get to know you and your tastes. Yeah. They're really good at recommending saying, "Hey, here's something you're really going to enjoy and engage with." Mm-hmm. Now you're buying with intention. You're not yeah. just buying stuff saying, eh, I'll get around to it." This person knows you now and knows your tastes.
1: And you're able to have conversations with them and they tailor things for you. They recommend other books they can order for you. And uh, the loyalty sort of goes both ways there. They're adding value to you. You're adding value to them. There's an exchange of, of value there. And I think these independent bookstores are really important. So much so that when Ryan and I did our 2014 tour, we did 100 cities, 119 events It was an independent bookstore tour. Now, there were three cities. I believe it was Dallas, Las Vegas, and Regina, Saskatchewan, Canada. Those three cities, out of the 100 that we did, didn't have an independent bookstore at the time. Now, think about that. Dallas didn't have one. Now, maybe that's changed because, in fact, pre-COVID... The independent bookstore scene had been improving over the last decade pretty significantly. There's been some articles about that, but of course that has changed. And we don't know the status now. In fact, we're probably pushing back Love People Use Things, our next book, to next summer instead of next spring because we need to be able to tour with the book and go out and read it in front of people and and have that exchange with with people, bringing people into these indie bookstores or... Into theaters, but having the indie bookstores there selling the book. I think indie bookstores are a really important part of the community. And uh, we, it's, I don't have anything necessarily against Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I don't think it's binary like that. I'm grateful for Amazon and a lot of the, the services that they provide. While at the same time realizing that having a giant monopoly or pseudo-monopoly, they're not a real monopoly can be a huge problem. And so, but they've also enabled us to be able to sell our books independently as well. And so in a way, Amazon is also helping independent creators and in, in many ways that a great bookstore like Shakespeare and co in Missoula can't do, they can't print, our books for us. They, they can't sell them online and ship them out next day and then all of the same day even in, in some cases and all of this stuff. So Amazon has its place. Barnes and Noble has its place. Your indie bookstore has its place. Given the choice, I will frequent the indie bookstore as long as I can. Mm-hmm but I'm not opposed to Barnes and Noble or or any of these other places as well. and I I think it's about prioritizing those. What is the priority for me? Indie bookstores. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that I forsake everything else altogether. Were there any others that that stood out to you on here? I I obviously saw changing hands. Uh, hands. Joseph Beth was a big one, although it was listed as Kentucky's best bookstore. I didn't even know there was one in Lexington. So, Lexi- the jo- Joseph Beth has two locations, apparently. Lexington and Cincinnati. I've spent a lot of time at Joseph Beth in Cincinnati because it was really close to where you used to work, down in Norwood. And yeah. um, we actually did a book tour stop there in 2014. And it all was full circle. I mean, what a honor to be able to, you know, to thinking uh, half a decade earlier, I was reading books there on my lunch break. And then all of a sudden we're like filling several hundred people into a space and reading in front of them at, at, at this bookstore. Phenomenal bookstore, great experience, really enjoy it. Uh, it almost feels, it feels like a very big, uh, in fact, what did they say here? Let me see if I could find it. Joseph. Yeah. Joseph Beth. One reviewer called Joseph Beth, the world's largest small Book bookstore. bookstore. Yeah, That's perfect. Work. The yeah. world's largest small bookstore. That, 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 Perfectly encompasses. Although, uh, I here's here's what i have to say. Dayton is notorious for not having a good indie bookstore. Our, our hometown, Dayton, Dayton Ohio. Proper. Yeah, yeah. Where, where would you where would you say? Uh, well, I mean, Tip City. Uh,
0: yeah, actually, yeah. You know, and it's a it's a shame because they lost a lot. We talked about this. Uh, so browse a wild books in mm-hmm. Tip City. Would you've been there? Sure. Um, I grew up in Tip City. Now, so what about the experience of, of, of browse a Wild? That what, what what made it stand out? Oh, well, it was, uh, well, uh, tip city itself is an old uh, canal town. Yeah. Uh, it grew up around the Miami or canal. There was a lock there. Lock 17, I think actually on, uh, the, uh, east side of town and it was very close to there. So they took one of these old, uh, they almost have a frontier look, the, you know, the old canal, um, buildings downtown. Yeah. Took one of these old houses, converted it into a used bookstore. I mean, they had some new stuff in there, but it's primarily old stuff. Right. Um, and uh, it was just cavernous, right? You could go through, you could go into the basement of the place, go up to the second, yeah. third floors of the place. And well, that's
1: what I liked about it. It, felt, it really books. did feel... I mean, browse a while, it was like explore a while, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there was something about that. Now, they had a lot of used books there, though, right? So it's 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 oh, hard yeah. to... you know, I, When I'm thinking of bookstores, I often... I, for whatever reason, I will separate new and used. I don't know why. Maybe it's because like quite often when we want a new book, you can't go to a used bookstore mm-hmm. and get it. Um, but one of my favorite bookstores, which is not on here, is in Dayton, is at, at the Green. It's just Books and Co. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. It, it, and there's just something about the experience of... Mm-hmm. of, of and it's weird because it's like in a mall, or mall setting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a corporate store what they created is now yeah right at one point they were a small independent
0: uh there in Kettering and then when they branched out to the green and had a second location I think they might even have a third one now but the one in Kettering though I think that's called uh what's it called changing
1: or secondhand
0: uh? uh they might have changed it was there in town and country uh for the longest time that's actually where I met one of my and that's the other thing with some of the um uh, independence, you get to meet some uh, local authors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they're a lot more um, open to having uh, local authors come in. And there's a, a local author I loved, wrote a lot of uh, which you're going to talk about. I know uh, narrative nonfiction, uh, Alan W. Eckert, who lived up in Bell Fountain and wrote about uh, the Ohio River Valley, um, like uh, the frontiersmen, like Simon Kenton, uh, Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, and the settling. Of the United States, essentially. By I mean, we could get into a whole other conversation with all that, but I mean, it is still a fascinating history.
1: Well, let me talk to you, about you guys it. about that. What What makes a Jordan? You're You're younger. You're a millennial. Um, you're in your 20s. Do you ever spend any time at bookstores?
2: Uh, I did a little bit. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, the Phoenix or here in Phoenix. Okay. Uh, unfortunately my old life i was near a strip mall and i had a barnes and noble so yeah I no, spent, no i, I have yeah. i have
1: very fond memories of yeah. barnes and, and noble
2: yeah i just that was like uh, it was right by my high school it was just a thing that you know me and my friends would do we sure. go uh i never committed to buying books but i would read you know i'd sit i'd be the kid that you'd see sitting you know in the the uh the the what's it called section the, the art art sorry. and uh film i section. gotta interrupt you for a second oh. watch
0: oh sorry we have so, just briefly, why I inter- interrupted poor Jordan. So, we have uh, these nice, beautiful, white steel cabinets. But when Jordan touches it, when he's <laughs> going through, it actually completes a circuit. So, you guys might have heard a little buzzing there for Apologies. a second. So, I had to let him know not to touch that steel cabinet. It's okay. good. But, yeah, Go I
2: would, I would sit, uh, sit and read, you know, a lot of nonfiction, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not really – I've only read a couple – novels in my life really
1: well let's talk about that i do want to dive into the different types of in my writing class how to write if you're interested i i teach that there are seven or i'm sorry six different types of writing i think it's five plus like one additional one um which i i separate out uh fiction there's narrative nonfiction, which is like a and then there's instructive nonfiction. so narrative nonfiction is sort of like a mixture of fiction and and instructive nonfiction. There's poetry, which we're going to talk about some poetry today. There's communicative texts like textbooks or like Garner's um, American Usage Dictionary, which we'll, we'll touch on a little bit. And then there's also flash fiction, which I guess is like a subcategory of, of fiction. And uh, I think we have some examples of, of each of these. We'll, we'll try to get to some of those today. And I, I Jordan, I'm I'm kind of with you, but the opposite. Like where I used to read a lot more fiction in my 20s, Sean. I don't know if you're this way as well. I find that I I do read more nonfiction these days than I used to. Although I'm, I've I've had a bit of a resurgence with with fiction over the course of well this year in particular, especially during the pandemic. I'm not sure why that is. Could be a coincidence. It could be, a you know, uh, uh, an escape into new worlds since this world is so. Uh, dreadful at the moment Uh, at least it can be the drudgery of it so what makes a good bookstore for you though even even that yeah i'm sure you have fond memories of that barnes and noble what what made a a good bookstore for you
2: um i don't know honestly i mean uh i'm i'm i think about the same things that i like about record stores is just the the Mm -hmm. tactile kind of uh homely feel it's dark and wooden and you know, smells kind of moldy. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you know, I, there's there's there is a very distinct smell. Barnes and Nobles, in particular, they smell like uh, burnt coffee and books. <laughs> you know, and uh, I used to really enjoy Borders, which doesn't exist yeah. anymore. I, in fact, I preferred Borders to Barnes and Noble. And uh, but to me, what makes a great bookstore? And by the way, this is missing from the best bookstore in California. <laughs> There's no question that it's the last bookstore oh, yeah. downtown, no question, L.A. Like it's yeah. the probably the my favorite bookstore in the country. Uh, the last an old bank, right? It what is. is it? It's an yeah. old bank vault. Yep. Uh, in fact, the climax of our first film, Minimalism, takes place in the last bookstore at the very, very end when the, the credit right before the credits start. The the music's playing and ryan's up there talking about imagine your life and i'm i'm doing the love people use things line we're in the last bookstore when that happens doing a tour stop there and what i remember from that night is there was an earthquake we got some of it on film we didn't make the film obviously but uh, we were doing a hug line at the end of the event and we're just hugging people and then all of a sudden. Everything starts shaking and it's an old bank vault and you see these giant columns start to sway. And I remember thinking for a moment, like this is it. This is how it ends. I'm dying hope, in a bookstore. I hope Matt gets out of here with the footage.
0: <laughs> a writer dying in a bookstore.
1: <laughs> I know, right? Iron. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I, I was uh, going to
2: say the the one person in the, the hug line that hugged you right around when that started. Yeah, I met the minimalist and I'm shook. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And so uh, that bookstore creates an experience. I don't know about the, they, they have a rare book section there too, which I really like. They ha- but they, they have a book tunnel. They have a book maze upstairs. Then they have like all of these artist studios upstairs as well. So you, it's almost like you, it's like going to a shopping mall, but instead of consumerism, you have art and what a great replacement yeah. they do a great job creating that experience it's it's not the most beautiful bookstore i've ever been in it's not the most stark but it is the most unique experience and they also very eclectic yes and that they, they have great uh eclectic but but curated at the same time yeah. a, and they have great events there mm-hmm. it's downtown it's it's strange to get to but <laughs> it's a strange place and but it's beautiful and its strangeness, and so it's shocking that that's not the the number one bookstore yeah, right. in the country. Um, but we'll, we'll put a link to this list there. But Sean, what what makes a real quick? What, what makes a, a, a bookstore really stand out to you? Um, yeah, for me, it's uh,
0: I, I like the, the the hominess of of a lot of the independent bookstores. Yeah, where I can sit, especially that they have these these nice uh, seating areas, so I can sit down.
1: That's the yeah. one thing that drives me crazy. In my in my neighborhood, there's a book. One of my favorite bookstores called Book Soup. And I take my daughter there to like go look at kids' books and stuff. It's
0: over on Sunset, isn't it? Uh, Am I yeah. taking the right yeah, one? Yeah, it is. Okay.
1: And when we go there, there's no seating area, and because there isn't, like, Elle and I just have to sit on the floor to read these children's books mm. together. And it would be such a better. I like everything else about that store mm. and the tightness and. Uh, But, yeah, there's something about having a a comfortable seating area. And I think that's why Barnes & Noble often wins, because they do provide that to people where other stores don't.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, for me, and it sounds like, uh, for you guys as well, a a friendly and knowledgeable staff. Yes. You know, so, um, and especially once uh, I've established a relationship with a local independent bookstore, uh, like Garth, at at Shakespeare & Company. Mm Mm-hmm. That they know your tastes,
1: right? Yeah, and, and you run into them in town, and they mm-hmm. they they know who you are, and and uh, they're happy to see you. It's part of the community, and you have a conversation about these books that you both have read. And, yes, yeah. And you're telling them you're adding value to them. You're telling them about books that, that you they might like, and and vice versa. And oh, I didn't like this one, and here's why, and here's where I couldn't go with it. By the way, the the bookstore we were talking about in Dayton that used to be town, uh, that used to, that is at Town and Country is called Second and Charles.
0: Also, but it's yeah, okay. and it's still great. They took over the the Books and Co.
1: Yeah, okay. yeah, and it's it's a great. Uh, they, they use the old fixtures and everything oh, so it really? still feels very much like a books and co yeah yeah in fact uh, next time we get back to Dayton I'll, I'll take you over there yeah it's, uh, it. it's a good spot Second and Charles Second and Charles Any, anyway whenever I go to a bookstore one of my favorite activities is so I don't read some book synopses <laughs> I refuse to and he, let me tell you why so I'm holding up a book here The Answers I just grabbed the first one that, that I have The Answers by Catherine Lacey and there's a particular book that I, I'm going to tell you about in a moment but Before reading, I'll read the synopsis after I read the book. Mm -hmm. And I like this one, I'm like, oh, if I would have read this beforehand, it would have sort of ruined the first 50 pages for me. Like you just summarize the first 50 or 100 pages. Mm. Well, now where's all the exploration? If you explain the whole world to me, then drop me into it. It's not nearly as much fun as if I just start with the first page. There's a book called Wittgenstein's Mistress. It's a novel by David Markson. And I read that book. And then I, and halfway through it, I sort of accidentally glanced at the synopsis. Yeah. Don't read the synopsis of that book. It ruins the whole book. It's like, no, the, the, it basically gives you this surprise ending, at least what I thought of as a surprise ending, on this one page synopsis. And I get that there are marketers trying to market a book, but man, talk about. The worst thing you could do for a book is run it before you get started. So here's what I do instead. And Bex and I, we this is one of my favorite activities when bookstores are open. In fact, they are open now. Like the last bookstore is open as long as you wear your mask, you can go there downtown.
0: Is book soup? I heard at one point weren't they just uh, bringing stuff out to the curb? Yeah,
1: it's great, which does, it sort of defeats the purpose, yeah. I think.
0: <clears throat> You're Amazon at that point, <laughs> yeah, almost
1: I, I basically. Except they're more expensive and mm. less convenient. Amazon at least delivers it to my house, mm-hmm. right? If I have to go to book Soup now I'll support them for a short period of time while they're going through this, but mm-hmm. if this was the long-term solution, mm-hmm. no, it, it doesn't. just doesn't make sense. It doesn't provide the same yeah. service for the community. So what Bex and I will do is we will walk to our local bookstore. Anytime we're in a city, we'll just go to a bookstore together and take 15, 20, 30, 60 minutes, whatever time we want to take, just to have a little bit of fun reading books. And quite often, this is how I'm introduced to new authors, new books, is we'll pick it up. And in my writing class, there's something I call narrative urgency. Mm. And I don't know if I made up that term or if I read it somewhere that I've forgotten. But basically, the point of the first line of a book is to make you want to read the second line. The second line is different. The point of the second line is to make you want to read the third line. So forth and so on. Anything else is superfluous. And so when you're talking about David Foster Wallace earlier and how he is both a maximalist and a minimalist, well, it's because every line sort of serves the next line, even in a crazy long book like this, like uh, *The Pale King*, which is his final novel. He ended up dying; he killed himself uh, before this was finished. But it's so it's 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 strange that there's something very meta about this because this is his third novel and it's marketed as an unfinished novel. But I would actually argue it's his most finished novel. His first two, like his first book, spoiler alert, (laughs) go ahead and fast forward 30 seconds. His first book, A Broom of the System, is it ends mid-sentence. And it's shocking, it's stunning. Like all of a sudden it just stops and you're like, I think I got a, a, the wrong copy. It must there's a misprint, but it's a book about sort of irresolvability resolvability or, 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 or um, not resolving and infinite jest. You would argue that there is a conclusion, which is his biggest book. And I didn't bring that today um, because I wanted to talk about some of his other work. Uh, I, it, it sort of ends to the right of the frame. It doesn't end on the last page of the book. There's an ending. There's a beautiful last line to it. And I feel like there's this last gasp, but it doesn't tie up everything neatly with a bow like a lot of books do. And I, I know some people have some certain resentment for that. This hundred and seventy-nine page no, or 1,079-page novel doesn't tie up everything neatly with a bow, but it's not supposed to. Now, this book, The Pale King, it does some stuff. I mean, I think it's, it's personally my favorite book of his although it's not the one I recommend. In fact, I want to go ahead and dive into some of these books because I think we can read some first lines here. I think it's a great way to get introduced to a book, not read the synopsis. Yeah. Let's read the first line. Let's talk about some favorite first lines of books. Now, I have two lists here that I made in in Can I in throw in pen. one thing there? Yeah, th- Just to briefly
0: me. interrupt you? Tell me. Um, I, you and I talked about this at one point too. Uh, Mickey Spillane, who I really like, what he was one of the uh, uh, top pulp, Pulp Fiction writers in the uh, 60s, he wrote the Mike Hammer series. Yeah, very much like uh, uh, McKinty, right? I yeah. Mean, in that in that uh, um, style. What about him? So Mickey Spillane said, uh, he said, the first sentence sells the book in your hand. The last sentence sells the next
1: book. Oh, that's good. Uh, well, speaking of Adrian McKinty, this is one of my uh, six the six books I wish I would have written. And so I have two lists here. I have six books I wish I would have written. And my, well, it said, it said 10, and I crossed out 10 favorite books. Then it said 14 favorite books. And then it said 17 favorite books. So I think I've settled on 17 favorite books. And this is not by any means a comprehensive list. I literally filled up a grocery bag full of some of my favorite books that I'm constantly going back to and looking at. This is one of them. This is called Dead I Well May Be. It's by Adrian McKenty. I had, by the way, since you're a Patreon supporter, you can go back and listen to I, the longest quarantine conversation I did was with Adrian McKinty, and it was one of my favorites. And by the way, it was even much longer than that. We kept re- Once I hit stop, hit stop on the record, he kept talking to me for about another hour after that. I really <laughs> wish I would have recorded it. Uh, I could not get him off the phone, but it was one of the best conversations I've ever had. Can't wait for him to get on the podcast. He has such a great story. He quit writing to go start Uber driving, and then an agent forced him to sell a script which is now his most popular book called the chain and it's being turned into this giant movie this book is my favorite book of his dead i well may be i wish i would have written it there's several reasons why this was my bridge from genre fiction books like um the da vinci code which i'll give credit to the da vinci code is really well plotted mm-hmm. And it's entertaining. It, it's very entertaining. It got me to start reading again, or really reading at all. I didn't read much as a kid, but around age 21, I read The Da Vinci Code, and I was like, "Oh, this." There's something else that books do that that other things can't. That exchange of consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. And so I started reading genre fiction, you know, Harlan Coben and and uh, Dan Brown and and uh, you know, just different. Genre fiction, detective novels, and you know, all of these things. And you didn't Brad get Th- down to James Patterson, did you? i probably read some Patterson and and, and John Grisham. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, yeah, it, John John Grisham and uh, Brad Thor and like yeah. all, all of these people. But then I I picked this up. I found it a half price books. Dead I well may be, and I read it and I realized like oh there's something else that you can do with fiction. This is a mixture of genre fiction. But it's really literary fiction descri- disguised as genre fiction now, if I were to make a distinction between the two, genre fiction tends to be um tends to be concerned with often sexy careers um detectives Detectives, and uh, professors and they're doing like really i don't know um they tend
0: to be more plot centered
1: they're very plot centered but they're doing abnormal things whereas literary fiction a book like say freedom is a great example of Mm -hmm. this which i think is the great gatsby of our generation if you're watching this on the video um this is jonathan franzen's freedom i think it's um I think yeah, the Great Gatsby of of the current generation. It's a phenomenal book. I've read it three times, cover to cover. It's an amazing, amazing book. And I'll tell you that a book like this is more concerned with the interior life, mm-hmm. both in interior meaning in 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 the home, but also interior like in the head life. A little bit more character driven. Yes, yeah, and and, and also style driven in mm-hmm. many ways, right? Yeah. And. Well, you marry the two with someone like Adrian McKinty. So let's read some first lines here. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. so this is what got me. I opened this up.
0: This is the line opening the book.
1: Yes. No one was dead. <laughs> now that makes me want to read more. What why? do you mean oh, yeah. by no one is dead? Why, why would I assume anyone would be dead? <laughs> right? And that's why first lines are so important to me. I read the first line to everything that remains... On the minimal episode, but I'll just go through all three of our books and why the first line is so important to me. Uh, that this line is: "Our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear." I want you to say, "What? Okay." Like that, I want that to start to open up a world—not open the world completely, but it-, it cracks the door and the light comes in. Mm. Our identities are shaped by the costumes we wear. Let's go to essential. This is our essay collection, and the first lines are really important to me. As I say, it's the the experiment I like to go out and do regularly. And this is, this is a great first line for a book that is about consumerism, right? Essential is essays about intentional living. The First line of this is, there's a shopping mall in San Diego that used to be a prison. And Damn. so there's a metaphor there, right? Like drop, but please don't drop the mic. <laughs> yeah, Sean will get mad. And then, possibly my favorite first line is, of any of our three books is from our first book, Minimalism: Live a Meaningful Life. Conformity is the drug with which many people self-medicate. And I, I want to, I, I want you to want to read that second sentence. That is that that is the the point of that. I want a beautiful first sentence, and then I want something that catches you. I want something that you remember. Maybe you don't remember it word for word, but you remember it enough, that you remember how it made you feel. The Pale King is a good example of that.
0: This reminds me too, just real quick, um, and I think I've loaned this one to you before. There's a book by a guy named William Brohaw uh, called Write Tight, and yes. he talks about the difference between uh, baseball bat writing and pillow writing and he said when you hit something with a baseball bat it knocks you on your ass the pillow not so he said
1: focus on doing
0: baseball bat yes
1: yeah you don't want to be clobbering them with a pillow (laughs) uh so this is a first line That is a very long first line for the pale king but it creates an entire world for you. And it's obviously beautiful. Past the flannel plains and blacktop grafts and skylines of canted rust and past the tobacco brown river overhung with weeping trees and coins of sunlight through them on the water down river to the place beyond the windbreak where untilled f- fields simmer shrilly in the a.m. heat. Shattercane, lamb's quarter, cut grass, saw briar, Nutgrass, grass, weed, wild mint, dandelion, foxtail, pine, spine cabbage, goldenrod, creeping Charlie, butter print, nightshade, ragweed, wild oat, vetch, butcher grass, volunteer beans, all heads gently nodding in a morning breeze like a mother's soft hand on your cheek period and it just sets up this world of of um well we know where we are we're in the middle of the midwest right mm-hmm. he could say it's 1985 in peoria illinois does that make me want to read the second sentence no but he just opened up this world for me and he did so in such a, a, a he, he he painted it it's a painting I'm, I'm visualizing a painting that's what words can do but they don't just create the painting they bring you into the painting and it's that selective detail you had there yes so let's let's find some more first sentences here another one of my favorite first sentences this is another book i wish of the six books i wish i would have written civilized to death i'll just tell you about those six books i wish i would have written real quick There's civilized to death there's freedom which i held up earlier the great american novel um, that one's a bit ambitious. I don't know if I'd ever, be, I don't know if I'll ever have the talent level of a Jonathan friends and he's a savant. Um, there are some other books on my favorite list that I couldn't have written. So I didn't say, I wish I would have written infinite jest. It's just not possible. I'll never in my lifetime be able to write a book like infinite jest. It's just beyond my, it's just like, I won't be able to win a dunk contest. It's okay. I've accepted that, right? There are certain things I can do really well and I can write really well. I can't do the infinite jest thing. It's not within my purview on my best days over many, many decades, I could probably create something like a freedom, possibly. It's unlikely, but I I feel good about my writing. I think I'm a very good writer, but there are levels to this. Yeah, and, and it, it, it,
0: sorry to interrupt again, De- but with uh, Franzen, uh-huh. and correct me if I'm wrong, see, so some of this I would attest that almost anybody can achieve those levels when you have the amount of time to dedicate to those things. I think Franzen, correct me if I'm wrong, he just writes. I don't yes. think he does anything else, right? That, that's just, correct. Okay. He doesn't teach. So all his time is focused on writing. Yeah. yeah.
1: He doesn't teach. doesn't do anything else. Um, in fact, this one doesn't even have a great first line. Hmm. Uh, the news about Walter Berglund wasn't picked up locally. He and Patty had moved away to Washington two years earlier and meant nothing to St. Paul now. But the urban gentry of Ramsey Hill were not so loyal to their city as to read the New York Times. That's a fairly just, uh, I don't know, blah, first sentence. It doesn't capture me. But the book itself captures me. The characters capture me. And I see myself in at least two of the characters. I see myself in all the characters. I see myself deeply in two of the characters, Patty and, and um, the son. I'm blanking on his name. It's been a few years since I've read it. Um, but I actually really like walter and richard who are the other two main characters and it's told from each of their points of view and it's a fascinating read if i if i were to recommend one if you were looking to read one novel that's probably the, the safest bet to recommend it's a masterpiece of a novel and while I, i'm not saying i could ever create a, a novel like that it's the thing i would aspire to write something like uh, a nonfiction book though civilized to death We've had Christopher Ryan on the podcast. He's best known for his book called "Sex at Dawn." Hmm. I think this is a much better book. The subtitle is "The Price of Progress," and the book is about, um, well, uh, how we have we've become so civilized that it's not necessarily a good thing. Civil we we in fact we use those words uncivilized as though that's a bad thing, but his his thesis is that's not the case. One of my Favorite first lines, though. It's only three words. Call me ungrateful. He goes on to say, I've got silver fillings in my teeth, artisanal beer in my fridge, and a world of music in my pocket. I drive a Japanese car with cruise control, power steering, and airbags poised to cushion me in an explosive embrace should I drift off. I wear German glasses that darken in California sunlight, and I'm writing these words on a computer that's thinner and lighter than the book that will eventually be printed in. I enjoy the company of friends I, I have lost I'd lost I enjoy the company of friends I'd have lost if they hadn't been saved by emergency surgery, and for the last seventeen years of his life my father's blood was filtered through the liver of a man named Chuck Zoner, who died in two thousand two. I have every reason to appreciate the many wonders of civilization. And yet And then I mean, that that pulls me in. It's a phenomenal book. Uh, it's really well-written. I think it's a masterpiece as well. Uh, we've, of course, had him on the podcast. Other books I wish I would have written, Dead I Well May Be, I mentioned. The Answers is the most recent book that I wish I would have written. I've already talked about it a bit. It's sort of a book about love and about dealing with health problems and the conceptions about love, the conceptions about getting the answers we think we want. Uh, The characters are so compelling. There's a great um, blurb on here. I'm okay with reading blurbs more so than synopses. But this one says, Lacey's work manages to be both conceptual and human, socially aware and mordant. Think Don DeLillo for millennials. So Don DeLillo is one of my favorite authors. And in fact, one of my favorite books on my 17 favorite books list is a book called The Body Artist by Don DeLillo. It's one of his lesser known works. It's really short, but I think it's I think it's an example of probably the most gorgeous writing you can read. It's either that or Jesus' Son, which is another mm. book on my 17 favorite books. Jesus' Son is, uh, it's not a religious book. Uh, it, the line comes from the epigraph which is a Lou Reed uh, song about heroin. When I'm rushing on my run and I feel like Jesus' son. It's about doing heroin. The main character is a heroin addict. And uh, it's not even a novel, though. It's a collection of short stories. So, But it, it sort of walks the line between novel and short story collection. Mm-hmm. They all have the same main character. His name's Fuckhead. And mm-hmm. um, it's, I mean, some of the most beautiful writing, but he takes these most de- the downtrodden places. Trailer parks, hospital emergency rooms, and makes them gorgeous through prose. It's quite the task. I, I think. T-
0: oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: Um, I would. I would uh,
0: say the same for um, when I first when you introduced me to uh, Pollock, and I wrote
1: and I read Knock 'em Stiff.
0: Yes, Knock 'em Stiff has that same feel to it because it's. It's a rough area.
1: Yeah, Double Knock 'em Stiff. So Donald Ray Pollock, Jesus, all uh, I'm sorry, the the, the the devil all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the Netflix film that we recommended on the Minimal episode. But he has his very first book is called Knock 'em Stiff. Mm-hmm. It's a short story collection. It's great, downtrodden, beautiful. Mm-hmm. And and what I love about it, and when I had lunch with him, he's by the way, he's the guy who taught me those four magical words, sit in the chair. And he said it sort of as a throwaway line. We were eating at a Thai restaurant in Chillicothe, Ohio. He ordered the steak at a Thai. I didn't even know you could order steak at a Thai restaurant. It's like ordering spaghetti. I yeah, he'd ordered a steak at a Thai restaurant in in Chillicothe. We're sitting there, which is an old paper mill town, 40,000 people. I went to recording school there for a. Uh, period of time in 1999, and uh, audio engineering school that is, and so I was a little bit familiar with the town, but I went back there. It's not too far from Dayton to sit down with him and just to try to absorb the wisdom because I loved his story. He quit the paper factory and just talked to his wife. And he's fifty, right? He was fifty, 50. and she said, "All right, uh, yeah, I support you on this. You got five years to figure it out." And so he set up a uh, in his dusty attic. He set up a little tiny desks and, and went up there and wrote every day he was able to get a like nominal scholarship to take a few classes at Ohio State they made him like do some teaching on the side I could be wrong I think he did actually graduate with a creative arts degree uh, from
0: or creative writing degree Rather from Ohio State in I his fifties. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah, not not
1: previous. To no, that. no. He, he was a factory no. worker who just enjoyed reading mm-hmm. Carver and Coover and 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 you know wh- whoever else you know the the, the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, he really enjoyed reading mm-hmm. fiction and uh, wanted to be a part of that process. Wanted to write it. Wanted to be creating that exchange of consciousness. And I think ultimately, that's what these these books do. They communicate something and they express something. This is something I teach in my writing class, where every good book both expresses and communicates. There's two types of communication. There's communicative communication, which is something like Gardner's book here. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the difference though. So I'm holding this up for the camera. This is a heavy book. I mean, this is like size six font, and it's a 1,000 pages, right? And this is communicative writing. It's not, there's maybe a few sprinkles of expressive writing because Garner's that good, but this is meant to communicate something, just like a calculus textbook. Now, this book is not a book I'm going to take to the beach and read cover to cover. This is a reference book. That's why I have it.
0: Challenge accepted.
1: (laughs) (laughs) there's a whole section here I just opened it up to a random page on euphemisms so um, the thing about a modern usage dictionary is it's not meant to be a dictionary in the sense that you pick it up and you say I'm going to define a word it shows you how to use parts of the language most effectively deals more with the
0: vernacular and colloquialisms
1: yes Yes, it does. And, and so you'll learn that you don't write different than, you write different from. The correct way is, is, is well, different. Well, now from. I do. <laughs> well, it's like... Um, it's like whether versus if. And as... Well, what am I thinking? As, since, and because? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, you wouldn't write right. as we, uh, when you mean since or because. Yeah. Sure. And so a book like that will help you delineate between mm. those things and it will help improve your writing over time. Uh, like we talked about earlier, compose versus comprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those things can be confusing to the layperson, and that's why we get better over time. We learn some of these rules that seem arbitrary to us at first, but they make for good writing. And you wouldn't use sentence adverbs like hopefully to start a sentence. That's that's weak writing. And you'll learn that in a book at like like Gardner's Modern American Usage. Now, you can use it if you're describing a character that – Speaks that way, mm-hmm. but it's not the strongest, most concise sentence. You wouldn't say, "Hopefully, we'll find more light at the end of the day." You know, it, it doesn't. It, Although I think he does give, if if I remember
0: correctly, in Garner's, yeah. I think the other thing he does really well in that book, but for those that want to, um, it's it's great for those that want to um, refine their American English. I am going to differentiate here between British and American English, right? Sure, um, but in that one uh with hopefully if i remember right he talks about and, and there are a few other words like that where he talks about the progression of it being accepted he's like it's at this level kind of of acceptance to use it that way and if i remember correctly you'd have to look it up for me but yeah i'm looking at it right now here we like, go yeah.
1: i just pulled it up hopefully a uh what was it g- generally four points about this word first <laughs> It was widely condemned from the 60s to the 80s. Briefly, the objections are that, one, hopefully, properly means in a hopeful manner and shouldn't be used in the radically different use, I hope, or it is hoped to be. Two, if extended... If the extended sense is is accepted, the original sense will be forever lost. And three, in constructions such as, hopefully it won't rain this afternoon, the writer illogically ascribes an emotion, hopefulness, to a non-person. Hopefully isn't analogous to curiously, which equals it is a curious fact that. Fortunately, it it is a fortunate thing that. And sadly, It is a sad fact that, how so? Unlike all those other sentence adverbs, hopefully can't be resolved into any larger expression involving a corresponding adjective, hopeful, but only the verb hope. And then there's a similar uh, entry for thankfully. Now he goes on, there's an entire half, no, entire page basically to talk about hopefully and when it's, it does become acceptable yeah, and, and I, not. But what basically what he's saying here is some of the best writing is not going to use a word like hopefully. Yeah. And he explains to you why, and, and then you realize like, oh, okay, the, if I want my writing to be strong, muscular, then I'm not going to use a word like baseball that. Baseball bat writing. Yeah. We're talking about. Speaking of muscular so, writing or baseball bat writing, uh, one of my favorite... Books one of my seventeen favorites here is the longest title on all of these. It's called <laughs> "The Motion of the Body Through Space." Mm. Lionel Shriver. She is, she's what I would call the most muscular writer of uh, alive currently. I mean, her writing and, and her vocabulary is so so strong. And what a great book! It's sort of about our obsession with fitness and 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 physical, um, how. A physical decline over time and it's uh, but the way that a book is written it's also written in a way that questions sort of the new norms of pc culture versus the old norms of traditionalism and points out the absurdities of both in many ways but it does so in a way that i don't think you get away with in nonfiction, it, because then you're ascribing it to an author in their opinion but in a book characters have opinions mm. and they can argue back and forth bad things tragic things can happen to them and when tragic things happen to them often their opinions come to the fore and when that happens you get exposed to these different ideas without being reactionary yourself like when these characters express an idea that is antith- antithetical to my belief systems i don't say well that character's stupid i i say oh wow that's a fascinating point of view and often you can do things with fiction that you can't do with the essay, mm. and, and even the masters of, of writing, I mean David Foster Wallace, his essay collection, by the way, when I say Wallace is my favorite author, the thing that people ask, well where should I start, Infinite Jest, well no, I don't know, I don't know very many people who have ever read Infinite Jest. Uh, you I've, and I were talking about that, it takes, it takes some work. Yeah, it takes six months of your life and, mm. and a lot of dedication. You have to focus. Uh, yeah. Speaking of muscular writing, but also it's, it's a very dense book. Sentence go on for pages and it's beautiful. And there's all these alternate narratives and, and there's, you know, there's the whole addiction thing. There's a tennis academy and you actually learn they're kind of the same thing. Like sports addiction or addiction to excellence is the same thing as drug addiction. There's so many levels. Yeah. So many levels. To and, that. and so, The uh, supposedly fun thing I'll never do again is his essay collection. It's his first essay collection came out right after Infinite Jest. And it's the book I recommend to people who say I want to really get started reading some David Foster Wallace. So uh, my favorite essay in here, and by the way, I I like every single essay in this book, but my favorite is called Getting Away from Already Pretty Much Being Away from It All. Um, And... What a great title. I know, right? <laughs> He's the, the master of these long titles. And let me see if I can find what page that is on. That is on, yeah, getting away from already being pretty much away from it all. Um, it is on page 83 of the book. And these are these, what I would call an experiential essay, where it's narrative nonfiction There's maybe, maybe it's morally instructive and redemptive, but it's also entertaining and laugh out loud funny. Like I will, I'll pull this out and start reading to Bex and we will just be sitting at the kitchen table cracking up, right? So this is getting away from already pretty much being away from it all. It was published in Harper's or at least attenuated version was published in Harper's magazine as uh, a ticket to the fair because it takes place at the Illinois State Fair. Press day is a week or so before the fair opens. I'm supposed to be at the Grounds, Illinois, building by like 0900 hours to get press credentials. I imagine credentials to be a small white card in the band of a fedora. I've never been considered press before. My My main interest in credentials is getting into rides and stuff for free. I'm fresh from the East Coast to go to the Illinois State Fair for a swanky East Coast magazine. Why exactly a swanky East Coast magazine is interested in the Illinois State Fair remains unclear to me. I suspect that every so often, editors at these magazines slap their foreheads and remember that about 90% of the United States lies between the coasts, and they figure they'll engage somebody to do pith-helmeted anthropological reporting on something rural and heartlandish. I think they decided to engage me for this one because I actually grew up around here. Just a couple hours drive from downstate Springfield. I never did go to the state fair, though, growing up. I pretty much topped out at the county fair level. In August, it takes hours for the dawn fog to burn off. The air is like wet wool. It's 8 a.m. Too early to justify the the, the car's AC. I'm going... I'm on I-55 going south by southwest. The sun's a blotch in the sky that isn't so much cloudy as opaque. The corn starts just past the breakdown lanes and goes right to the sky's hymn. It just every sentence, man. The corn that goes to the sky's hem. Who writes like that? The August corn's as tall as a tall man. <laughs> Illinois corn is now knee-high by about the 4th of May, what with all the advances in fertilizers and herbicides, locust chur in every field, a brassy electric sound that dopples oddly. that dopplers oddly in the speeding car. Corn, corn, soybeans, corn, exit ramp, corn, and every few miles an outpost way off on a reach in the distance. House, tree with tire swing, barn, satellite dish. Grain silos are the only real skyline. The interstate is dull and pale. The occasional other cars all look ghostly. Their drivers' faces humidly stunned. A fog hangs just over the field like the land's mind or something. The temperature's over 80 and already climbing with the sun. It'll be 90 plus by 10 a.m. You can tell. There's already that tightening quality to the air, like it's drawing itself in for a long siege. Man, there's uh, there's some parts of this. Let me well, see you if nailed interstate driving in the Midwest. Is, yeah, isn't it true? I mean, it, there's something so there's there's beauty in the banality, mm-hmm. and I think he captures that really well in in parts of this. But then I, I think he also captures like these these other things that are supposed to be spectacular that end up just being really banal so there's there's beauty in the banality but there's so there's spectacular experience within banal experience but there's also banal experience within spectacular experiences and so let me see if I can find something there there's this one part that um, happens I believe that there's a baton twirling competition.
0: Oh, if you're looking for that the way he described it people would actually want to go to the Midwest. I'd describe it as flat nothingness. But <laughs> but the way David Foster Wallace describes it, the beauty he puts in that banality, right?
1: You would be like, "Oh, you know what? I would really like to experience that." Well, it's funny you say that because I, you know, people all say, well, "I'm a mountain person or I'm an ocean person." Mm-hmm. But I often think of myself as just a flatlands person. I'm from the Midwest, and and every time we land somewhere in the Midwest, it doesn't even have to be back in Dayton or Ohio in general. It could be Indianapolis, or it could be Fargo, North Dakota. It feels like a like a strange kind of home to me. That's it. That's really interesting. I would
0: um, I'm gonna play uh, amateur psychologist for a second. I wonder if that has to do with. I mean, just, um, you joke around about your OCD, yeah. but right. Having that, should I see clean lines,
1: right. When mm-hmm. you think of a, a, a flat area, like yeah. much of where we grew up. Right. Well, let's see here. There's, um, there's something about, uh, oh, here we go. Sun, a mid nineties, puddles and mud trying to evaporate into air. That's already waterlogged. By the way, this is, uh, at the beginning of it, it says August 15th at 9.30 a.m. Every smell just hangs there. The general sensation is that of being in the middle of an armpit. I'm once again at the capacious McDonald's tent at the edge, the titanic inflatable clown presiding. Why is there no Walmart tent? There's a fair-sized crowd and the basketball bleachers at one side and rows of folding chairs at the other. It's the Illinois State Junior Baton Twirling Finals. A metal loudspeaker begins to emit disco, and little girls pour into the tent from all directions, twirling and gamboling in vivid costume. There's a symphony of zippers from the seats and stands as video cameras come out by the score, and I can tell it's pretty much just me and a thousand parents. The Baroque classes and divisions, both team and solo, go from age 3 to 16 with with epithetic signifiers. For example, the 4-year-olds compose the Sugar and Spice division, and so on. I'm in a chair right up front, but in the sun, behind the competition's judges, introduced as varsity twirlers from the University of Kansas. There are are four frosted blondes who smile a lot lot and blow huge grape bubbles. The twirler squads are all from different towns. Mount Vernon and Kankakee seem especially rich in twirlers. The twirlers' spandex costumes, differently colored for each team, are paint-tight and really brief in the legs. The coaches are grim, tan, lithe looking women, clearly twirlers once on the far side of their glory now and very serious looking, each with a clipboard and a whistle. It's all a little like figure skating. The teams go into choreographed routines, each routine with a title and a Designated disco or show tune full of compulsory baton twirling maneuvers with highly technical names. A mom next to me is tracking scores on what looks like, what looks almost like an astrology chart and is in no mood to explain anything to a novice baton watcher. The routines are wildly complex and the loudspeaker's play-by-play is mostly in code. All I can determine for sure is that I've bumbled into what must be the single most spectator hazardous event at the fair. Missed batons go all over, whistling wickedly. The three, four, and five-year-olds aren't that dangerous, though they do spend most of their time picking up drop batons and trying to hustle back into place. The parents of especially fumble-prone twirlers howl in fury from the stands while the coaches chew gum grimly. But the, little, but the littler girls don't have the arm strength to really endanger anybody. Although one of the judges does take a sugar and spice baton across the bridge of the nose and has to be helped from the tent. But, he, but when the seven and eight-year-olds hit the floor for a series of, quote, arm serviced medleys... Errant batons start pinwheeling into the tent ceiling, sides, and crowd with real force. I myself duck several times. A man just down the row takes one to the plexus and falls over in his metal chair with a horrid crash. The batons, one stray I picked up, had regulation length embossed down the shaft have white rubber stoppers on each end, but it's that dry kind of hard rubber, and the batons themselves are not light. I don't think it's an accident that police nightsticks are also called service batons. Physically, even within the same age teams, there are marked incongruities in the size and development. One nine-year-old is several heads taller than another and they're trying to do an involved back and forth duet thing with just one baton which ends up taking out a bulb in one of the tent steel hanging lamps and showering part of the stands with glass. A lot of the younger twirlers look either anorexic or gravely ill. There are no fat baton twirlers. The enforcement of this no endomorph rule is probably internal. A fat person, a fat person would have to get exactly one look at herself in tight sequence spandex to abandon all twirling ambitions for all time. Ironically, it's the botched maneuvers that allow me to see how baton twirling, which to me had always seemed sleight of handish and occult, works in terms of mechanics. It seems to consist not. In twirling so much as just sort of spinning the baton on your knuckle while the fingers underneath work and writhe furiously and for some reason maybe supplying torque. Some serious kinesthetic force is coming from somewhere, clearly. A sort of attempted sidearm twirl sends a baton Xing out and hitting a big woman's kneecap with a ringing clang and her husband puts his hand on her shoulder as she sees... As she sits up very rigid and white, pop-eyed, her mouth a little bloodless hyphen. I miss good old native companion who's, this is uh, someone he's with, by the way. He's calling his girlfriend native companion. Who's the sort of person who can elicit conversation even from the recently baton struck. He goes on uh, where chaos ensues, uh, ensues here. And there's something fascinating about an essay like this. It's density. It's beauty. But he's writing about the Illinois State Fair. And let's be honest. If any of you listening to this wrote about the Illinois State Fair, I probably wouldn't want to read about it. I don't want to go to the Illinois State Fair. I don't want to hear about the Illinois State Fair. I don't want to watch it on TV. But a certain kind of writer can write about the Illinois State Fair in a way that doesn't just make me feel like I'm there, but makes me feel like I'm in his head or her head, and that I'm there. A writer with the right amount of talent can make boredom accessible and rewarding, and that, in fact, is a good transition into The Pale King. So we, we read the opening page of The Pale King, but David Foster Wallace's work, this is his final novel, This is a book about boredom. It takes place in Peoria, Illinois at an IRS office in 1985. I can't think of anything much more boring than that, but it might be my favorite. you hit all the points of boring there. Yeah, it might be my favorite uh, book of his. I'm going to read a few things here because there are parts that are truly stunning. There are other parts that are truly boring. This is from chapter 25 of The Pale King. I'm not going to read this whole chapter. You'll see why in a moment. Irrelevant Chris Fogel turns a page. Howard Cardwell turns a page. Ken Wax turns a page. Matt Redgate turns a page. Groovy Bruce Channing attaches a form to a file. Ann Williams turns a page. Anand Singh turns two pages at once by mistake and turns one back, which makes a slightly different sound. David Cusk turns a page. Sandra Pounder turns a page. Robert Atkins turns two separate pages of two separate files at the same time. Ken Wax turns a page. Lane Dean Jr. turns a page. Olive Borden turns a page. Chris Aquintapace turns a page. David Cusk turns a page. Rosellen Brown turns a page. Matt Redgate turns a page. R. Jarvis Brown turns a page. Anne Williams sniffs slightly and turns a page. Meredith Rand does something to a cuticle. Irrelevant Chris Fogle turns a page. Ken Wax turns a page. Howard Cardwell turns a page. Kenneth type of thing Hindle attaches a memo 402C1 from a file. Second knuckle Bob McKinsey looks up briefly while turning a page. David Cuss turns a page. A yawn proceeds across one chalk's row by unconscious influence. Renee Holbrook turns a page. Latrice Teekson turns a page. Rotes Group Room 2 hushed and brightly lit, half a football field in length. Howard Caldwell shifts slightly in his chair and turns a page. Lane Dean Jr. traces his jaw's outline with his ring finger. Ed Shackelford turns a page. L. P. D. Carter turns a page. Ken Wax attaches a memo 20 to a file. Anand Singh turns a page. That chapter goes on for a while. That's one page. I just turned a page. And there's boredom there. And if you were just to read that, you would go crazy. But that's chapter 25 for a reason. It's part of this broader thing that takes place in the IRS office. A lot of it
0: definitely felt like i was in an irs office yes
1: and it's supposed to be mimetic of that but then there are other moments that are truly beautiful like the opening that i read to you obviously but there's this other uh this is the sixth chapter here one of the characters we were introduced briefly to lane a dean jr is in this chapter with his girlfriend they were up on a picnic table at that one park by the lake, by the edge of the lake with part of a down tree in the shallows half hidden by the bank, Lane A. Dean Jr. and his girlfriend, both in blue jeans and button-ups, they sat up on the table's top portion and had their shoes on the bench part that people sat on and picnicked in carefree times. They had gone to different high schools but the same junior college where they had met in campus ministries. It was springtime. The park's grass was very green, and the air suffused with honeysuckle and lilacs both, which was almost too much. There were bees, and the angle of the sun made the water off the shallows look dark. There had been more storms that week with some down trees and the sound of chainsaws all up and down his parents street their postures on the picnic table were both the same forward kind with their shoulders rounded and elbows on their knees in this position the girl rocked slightly and once put her face in her hands but she was not crying lane was very still and immobile and looking past the bank at the down tree and the shallows and its ball of exposed roots going all directions and the tree's cloud of branches all half in the water. The only other individual nearby was a dozen space tables away by himself, standing upright, looking at the torn-up hole in the ground where the tree had gone over. It was still early, yet all the shadows wheeling right and shortening. The girl wore a thin old checked cotton shirt with pearl colored snaps with the long sleeves down and she always smelled very good and clean like someone you could trust and deeply, deeply care about even if you weren't in love. There's something in the scene It goes on. Um, I won't spoil it for you if anyone does want to read it. By the way, this isn't a book I recommend. The Pale King. I think it's a phenomenal book but it does require a lot of cerebration, and... Um I'm reading it because there there's real value here. But there's something in that scene in particular where the girl has her hand and her he- her head in her hands and he's staring forward and they're both sitting on this park bench side by side. And you could tell there's a moment and it goes on and, and it becomes more obvious that there's this tension there. That last line I led about you know, someone you could trust even if you're not in love, there's a a loss of love there, or maybe a love that never was. And it's trying to come to that realization, but also doing it in the presence of someone. You're afraid of hurting their feelings. And this is something you can capture in fiction, not by saying it. I can say these words out loud to you, and you know what I mean, but you don't feel what I mean. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit different. Let me move on to some other books here, because we've talked about the six books I wish I would have written Freedom, civilized the Death, The Answers, Dead I Well May Be. There's two more. One's a a novel, The Circle by Dave Eggers, which I have here on my Kindle. It was turned into a movie and the movie was pretty good, but the book is, I mean, that is, if there's one book I wish I would have written, Josh, if you you could take any of these six books and you feel like you could have written that book, 2013's The Circle by Dave Eggers is the book. I mean, it deals with technology, the technological problems we're dealing with now, seven years later. It was very prescient and I I still, there's something about that book that it gripped me. It gripped me at the right time. I don't know how long this book will be relevant. Uh, it's certainly still relevant right now. Mm-hmm. There's a similar, uh, well, there there was a book, there was a film that came out called Her. Do you remember that with uh, jo- Joaquin uh, yeah, Phoenix? Did you see that, Jordan? I thought that was really I, good. I never saw it, but I, and here's the problem. You tell me, Jordan, what do you think? So uh, there's a film like Her. Where it's on my queue now, but I'm like is it is it out of date at this point? Oh no.
2: No, I don't think so. Not I, I uh, agree. Particularly so her uh is a, is a is like a love it's like a love story,
1: but it has to do with AI. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which basically he falls in love with Siri. Yeah. A more complex Siri. Mm-hmm. And a Siri that actually works. Uh, so maybe it's Alexa. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> or I, I'm hearing Google Google Home does better. Ah,
1: yeah, it doesn't have a a um, anthropomorphized name. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you can't call it Jessica or something. So um, I feel this way about the circle, though. Like it's a book that is was prescient in twenty thirteen, but it may even be more so now where we're struggling so much. Now, because when Ryan and I first embraced minimalism and and discovered all these people living these minimalist lives like Joshua Becker and and Colin Wright and Leo Babalta and Courtney Carver and Tammy Strobel, uh, Nina Yao, these people were dealing with the same problems we were dealing with at the time. It was right after the Great Recession. And it was like, oh, there's, there's this overindulgence of consumerism and there's all this debt that is piled up people living beyond their means to buy stuff that isn't bringing joy or purpose to their lives we are suffocated right and well i think that's still true for many of us today I think there's an additional layer that's been added on over the last decade and that's distractions and a book I could have certainly put on my favorite 17 favorite books list would have been Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. Yeah. I think it's a profound book and as a necessary book because we are, in, in fact, oh, I, this is a, a Patreon episode, so I can say this. I think the next film we're going to be working on has something to do with digital minimalism called Scrolling is the New Smoking. Mm. And... It's based on this thing that I've been, been writing. And it seems to me the best medium for that is, is a film, uh, not a book necessarily. And, and digital, minimal, digital Minimalism is a great book, but I think the way to really expose it, maybe the best vehicle, is, is a film. By the way, I've become vehicle agnostic over the last decade as well. But over the last decade, what meaning books work really well for me, some films do something better mm. music does something better in other cases. By the way, second person I know I'm digressing here but if you, some books are written in second person, you, 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 you uh, j- uh, Bright uh, Lights, Big City Yeah, Bright Lights, Big City, uh, McInerney Jay, yep. Jay McInerney mm. um, that is probably the best example of, of yeah. you um, the climax of my novel, uh, as a decade fades is written in second person, it switches from third person to second person Uh, And it's a particular device. Now, I couldn't have sustained the whole book written in second person like Jay McInerney did. But songs are quite often written in second person. When you think about it, a lot of singer songwriters, it's all about you, you, you. I'm singing to you about you. Mm -hmm. It's written in the second person. A lot of books are first or third person, right? Or they they go back and forth. And even something that's written in the third person is written from different points of view from consciousness. So Mm -hmm. uh, David Foster Wallace does this really well, where you will be in the consciousness of the third person. The narrator sort of in that person's head, even though it's a th- written as third person, not from the I, me, me, me perspective. But then the consciousness sort of pans out and shows you the collective consciousness of other characters that are in the room. Uh, the answers. Uh, Catherine Lacey's book does this, where you're following a character, and all of a sudden you reach the second part of the novel and you start following a bunch of other characters. And you're like, whoa. I, and eventually it goes back to the main character you are used to following, but it opens this world up. It's all third person, but you're kind of in the mind of, of Mary, the main character, but then all of a sudden you're in Ashley's mind and it pans out and you get to see more of these these points of view. That's, that's, pretty, where, that's I'll throw hard a little to do. I love
0: to Mahalik too for that and the influencers. He does the same thing.
1: Our, our friend Sean Mahalik. Yeah. Yeah, so, in his uh, latest
0: book, The Influencers.
1: Yeah, it's called, it's called The Influencers. And I think that... It's 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 a, a thing that books do well. Mm-hmm. It's harder to do that with film. I'm not saying you can't do that. It's much harder to do that with film, and uh, and and still maintain versimilitude in in, mm. in the film. You can maintain it. I shouldn't say easily, but more congruently in in a book. There was uh,
0: one I thought that did it fairly well. I don't know if you remember this one. This was what mid 90s. I want to say uh, shortcuts. The Robert Altman film that was based I on. I've seen it. Do you remember this one, Jordan? I've never seen it, no. You've never seen that one? No. Uh, Altman did. Uh, so he's a guy that directed uh, MASH. What else did he direct that they would know? I don't know. Robert Altman. Well, I don't know, MASH was probably one of his biggest films that he did. Yeah. Uh, There's one called Nashville, too. It was really good. Mm. But um, it's Raymond Carver's short stories. Yes. So he took the ones that he felt um, were related to, related fairly closely in thematically to one another and it's all based in los angeles okay and it's all these how they kind of overlap and interconnect that is probably one of the few i've seen that did that well where yeah. they take those different they interconnect them but they're distinct still distinct stories
1: yeah yeah and it's it's something you can pull off you, it's, you can't pull off the same way that a book can mm-hmm. but uh, it's still it's still possible um but what i was saying earlier like We face this problem of consumerism, but now over the last decade we have this new problem, and it's distraction, Mm. and that's where digital minimalism really comes in here. And I think one of the things about book clutter, which we talked about in the minimal episode, Mm. is we're really distracted from reading by our books. (laughs) Isn't that that's a huge problem Mm. that we have so many books that we've it's paralysis analysis, and uh, we we've stopped reading as a result. Speaking of reading, I want to read an opening to you to Jesus' Son. I think this is an example of some of the most gorgeous writing. Uh, that, I mean, Dennis Johnson, he might be the best writer of all time. If he's not, he's in the top five. I've get, again, my personal opinion, you can say what you want. So Jesus' Son, we already talked about. Um, short story collection.
0: I think David Foster Wallace might feel slighted. <laughs>
1: yeah, that. I mean, to me, there's no one who's had a greater impact on my life. But uh, Dennis Johnson, there's something about his beauty, which uh, it's him and Don DeLillo, basically, are are the two. I'd put Mary Carr up there as well. I think Mary Carr is phenomenal, although the book I'm going to recommend of hers is actually a nonfiction book. A salesman, this is uh, the first page. I'll just read the first page of Jesus' son, the first story here. A salesman who shared his liquor and steered while sleeping. A Cherokee filled with bourbon. A Volkswagen, no more than a bubble of hash- hashish fumes, captained by a college student and a family from Marshalltown who who headed uh, who, who head on and killed forever a man west out of Bethany, Missouri. I rose up sopping wet from sleeping under the pouring rain, and something less than conscious. Thanks to the first three people, I've already named the salesman and the Indian and the student, all of whom had given me drugs. At the head of the entrance ramp, I waited without hope of a ride. What was the point, even, of rolling up my sleeping bag when I was too wet to be let in anybody's car? I draped it around me like a cape. The downpour raked the asphalt and gurgled in the ruts. That line. When you talk about Immediate scene. So when I something else I also teach in the writing classes, there's basically good writing navigates three different types of, of, of sentences. You have immediate scene. That is immediate scene. It puts you right there in the middle of the scene. The downpour raked the asphalt and gurgled in the ruts. I'll
0: butcher this, but the Latin phrase rest, uh-huh. in the middle of things.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, simply what I would call immediate scene. Just puts you in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's narrative so uh the narrative overlay right um that's that's the telling versus the showing immediate scene is the showing the narrative is the telling and and you hear that you want to show not tell but good writing actually does both there are some Mm -hmm. things that if you were to tell every absorptive detail it'd be too much it becomes uh guard's my struggle and it's like oh this is Mm -hmm. this is all telling and i want to be there in a lot of it but then sometimes you have to tell you have to keep the pace going and what you do by alternating between the three the third is dialogue by the way mm-hmm. uh so dialogue immediate scene and narrative you f- and by the way when i when i teach this in my writing class i go through and i just have a, a se- each sentence marked he is a master of, do- of alternating between all three every other sentence mm-hmm. so it goes from immediate scene to narrative to dialogue To narrative to immediacy and so every sentence switches it up and it keeps the the narrative urgency going in the book and so a book like jesus the son is super short i think it's 120 pages you could read it in a even if you're a slow reader like me you can read it in a sitting there are other books like um rupee the sun and her flowers which I really enjoy. I can just pick up any page and go straight to it. In fact, that's exactly what happened with this book. I picked this book up because Bex and I, we were somewhere where there was, and she needed to use the bathroom. And there was a Barnes and Noble nearby. I'm like, I know we can go use the bathroom there. So I take her to Barnes and Noble. I'm waiting outside the bathroom for her to get out. And this book is just on the shelf. And I pick it up and I turn to a page. So you just, you, no familiarity None with this at all. I'm not a big poetry writer, fan yeah. either. Uh, in fact, I'm a big fan of poets. Dennis Johnson is a poet. I don't really care for his poetry. Huge fan of Mary Carr. Uh, this book I'm holding up here is called The Art of Memoir. Now, she's written three amazing memoirs. Uh, Lit, Cherry, and The Liars Club was her first one, her most popular one. Her writing is gorgeous, also downtrodden Texas, West Texas, sort of uh uh writing but she makes it beautiful you know she talks about her dad shooting her stepfather and mm. yeah it's wild stuff um and the bullet holes in their trailer or whatever like it's it's phenomenal writing but then she also writes about how to write good narrative non-fiction in the art of memoir which is another one of my 17 favorite books but i don't care for her poetry that much either i've tried to read it It's i'm it's not you it's me sort of thing but i feel that way about most poetry but there was something about rupee core and her poetry i've tried to get her on the podcast but then the um, pandemic started and Mm -hmm. she's canadian i don't imagine her coming here anytime soon but let me see if i can find the page that really really resonated with me there was something i actually had remember we had matt nathanson on the podcast i had him read this poem on the podcast And it just, I don't know, there was something that that stuck with me about, I opened the book and it literally made me, it made me gasp. And now, of course, I can't find that poem. So I'm gonna pause real quick and see if we can find it. Of course, I find it, What? don't even pause. Don't even even pause, pause. I found it. (laughs) I opened it up, page 136. Waiting for backs. So I'm just standing there in a Barnes and Noble. I open this up and it says, In a dream, I saw my mother with the love of her life and no children. It was the happiest I'd ever seen her. And the name of the poem is What If? And man, uh, I'll share this with you because we're on Patreon. <laughs> um, There's been a few times where I've opened up this book in the last year and I've been reading it at the table with my wife. Mm -hmm. Not out loud, just reading it and she's there reading her thing. And I've just started crying. Like there, and it comes from a place that I didn't know I had access to. And this poem, for example, in a dream I saw my mother with the love of her life and no children. It was the happiest I'd ever seen her. Well, what is that? There's a whole world there there's what it says but then there's what it implies and it made me think like my mother had a great life before she birthed me I was an accidental birth my mom had uh, several miscarriages before me and just assumed she was never going to have kids Mm -hmm. but had me at age 36 and she had a relatively happy life before me Uh, she was a stewardess you know I write about all of this and love people use things the next Mm -hmm. book she was a stewardess. She was a nun before that. Uh, she like could have bounced around to all these amazing life. Uh, a very full, right? I mean, hugely a, full life yeah, before age 36. Experience. And then she had me, and she had me with my father, obviously. Uh, that's the only way she could have had me. And my father got sick. You know, He was schizophrenic. And in many ways, I think that ruined her life, um, unfortunately. It's not my fault per se, but in many ways it's because of me. But in a dream, I saw my mother with the love of her life, which I know the love of her life was not my father. It was her first marriage and he just ended up being a total jerk and he cheated on her regularly and didn't understand what the big deal was because it was sort of a cultural thing. Uh, he was from uh, a different country. And, um, I think that like there is, there's an alternate life where she just lived with him for the, and I was never here. Right. And, mm-hmm well, I have gratitude for them bringing me into this world. Um, I also feel sorry. and, And there's a, I can feel joy makes room for a certain kind of grief. And I feel a certain kind of grief here, even though I'm joyous, the fact that I'm alive and I'm grateful for it. And so I think there's something about poetry that can do that. There's also flash fiction. We're kind of running out of time here, but one of my favorite flash fiction authors is a friend of mine named Marcus Allman, at least that's his pen name. And uh, com. we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I Right before this, Sean and I were trying to look up some of his old flash fiction, which I actually teach in my, my writing class. Uh, and if I had time, I'd go into the, the curriculum and dig it up. But uh, he, you know, flash fiction is usually 750 characters or less, or 750 words or less rather. Um, I guess you could do seven hundred fifty characters. That's flash fiction. <laughs> yeah, that's still, I would even argue that, that, that Hemingway's short story, uh the this, the in fact you gave me the very short short story. He has a story called that it's a one pager. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. I've got a PDF of it here. I don't have time to read the whole thing. But um that uh the six word short story that he has. Wait, could, do you you know off the top of your head, right? Let's let's see if I do. Um
0: baby for, for sale, baby shoes, never worn.
1: Yeah. And so that's like extreme flash fiction. Mm. So flash fiction is usually 750 words or less and or fewer. And, and flash fiction is able to do something a lot of these other things can't do. Just like poetry, flash fiction is able to capture a, a whole world. You have to infer a lot in a, in a sort of one-page story. It's usually about one page. Mm. And it's a really great introduction if you're just wanting to start writing fiction, by the way, to to getting comfortable with immediate scene and narrative uh, uh, overlay and then dialogue and be able to switch between the three because you don't have to get too married to any character. I know before I – when I first started writing in my 20s, I wish I would have written more flash fiction. I felt so compelled to write novels right away. And there are three novels that I started – that never saw the light of day. One was called uh, Just Past Central, and the character, the main character, dies in the first line of the book. And I, it was hard for me to get past about seventy pages of writing there because the main character dies in the first line, um, and, and so you sort of obviously know the ending. And uh, the other book I, I tried to write was a genre fiction book called Cold Call about you know the sort of salesperson thing. And it, it just it didn't work for me, and I just didn't have I didn't have the architecture yet. I didn't have the skill set, the scaffolding Mm -hmm. upon which to build robust characters or anything like that. Eventually as a decade fades, which I wrote a lot throughout my twenties, I finally figured it out. It all came together around 28, 29, when I found the main character of that book. Before that it was a character that looked rather suspiciously like me, but I finally found the main character who was uh, in many ways the exact opposite of me but it experienced many of the the things i was going through so it's autobiographical fiction and that's probably my favorite first line of any book that i've written is um things could have been worse but not much worse and and then the, you get introduced to the main character jody grafton and and his sort of struggles which were many of the same struggles as me. They just manifest differently uh, through through him. And all of a sudden I was able to, it gave me the freedom to write about everything I wanted to write about and rewrite all these these little chunks that I had written throughout my 20s. I started this book when I was about 24, or at least some of these chunks I wrote. And it's some of the mo- my most beautiful writing in my life when I was 24, 25. And some of the things I, I go back and read parts of that book and I'm like, how did I write that? I couldn't write that well now. And it's not that I couldn't write that well. I write better than most of that now. But there are parts where it took a certain me to write mm-hmm. that. And I couldn't rewrite it in, in a way that was as visceral. I could write it that was more technical. Those are two different people.
0: You yeah. Know? I mean, when you think about it. For sure. Yep.
1: Yeah. So what other books should we talk about here? There are three books I buy by the case. I already told you. Anything you want by Derek Sivers. This one I buy by the case. Hand out to anyone who needs business advice. This is the only business advice book you ever need. It's probably not true, but that's the way I think of it, at least. Uh, the other book I buy by the case, I don't have here right now because I gave away my last copy of it. Um, so I need to buy some more. We actually probably have some in the other room, Sean. Uh, Total Money Makeover. Yeah, we've got some in the other room because we keep some at the studio here. The uh, Dave Ramsey. If you have debt, it's the book you need to read. Total Money Makeover. Anyone who has debt, I buy it for the, I give it to them, I give it to you know, people graduating college. If you have debt and hate the idea of debt because it is a tether to a lifestyle you don't want to live, Total Money Makeover is the book. The third book I buy by the case is How to Be Here by Rob Bell, who was just on the podcast two weeks ago. He has a new book called Everything is Spiritual, which is really the book I wish he would have written a long time ago, but I think it took many years for him to write Everything is Spiritual. Phenomenal book. Can't say, by the way, I think Everything is Spiritual is a great book for anyone who is struggling with spirituality or religion and looking to get outside of the box that you're in or find a new, more appropriate box for you. It's a phenomenal book, wonderful book. But How to Be Here, I think, is his Open, magnum opus, it's his masterpiece. It's this book got Bex to leave her career when she read it. I remember when I was first reading, I was down in Florida, we had just opened this coffee shop, bandit, and I was reading some passages and I was reading on my iPhone on the Kindle app, highlighting, just taking screenshots and sending it to Bex. And when she read this book, within a couple months, she decided to leave she was a, a dietitian, nutritionist at a really popular university in Montana and had been doing that for over a decade. It's what she specialized in. It's what her degree was in. It's what her graduate degree is in. And a lot a lot of her identity was tied up in that. And she read How to Be Here and realized that her identity was tethered to some things that she needed to untether from. And it gave her a lot of the courage. There's a whole section in here about courage, actually. Um, there's a section here also about boredom and and dealing with boredom Uh, there's the section about a key guy the thing that gets you up in the morning that's a japanese word for the thing that gets you up in the morning and bex realized she didn't have that thing that was getting her up in the morning i buy this book by the case and i give it to people because it is such a power by the way you can listen to the we did we've done two other we've done three podcasts with him now at this point um uh, not one with it when this book came out in fact we were the very first guest on his podcast just randomly sean and and ryan and i were attending a seminar of his and he's like hey you guys look familiar and I'm like, yeah we're the Minimalists." he's like hey uh you guys want to be on my podcast and i was like yeah i'm a giant fan of yours of course we want to be on our podcast and so um that um, book though laguna yeah laguna beach
0: laguna beach yeah
1: yeah, that book, How to Be Here. I mean, mm. I, they, his his covers are phenomenal too. This one and... Um, Velvet Elvis. Velvet Elvis, the mm. first... I mean, mm. yeah, the 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 first edition of Velvet Elvis in particular. It's aggressively minimalist. <laughs> he had to have a huge fight with his publisher on that. <laughs> what else here? I hate political memoirs. I hate all of them except one. Or I guess you call it... This more autobiography. How would you distinguish autobiography from memoir I know there's the the Venn diagram has 80% overlap but there is a dip autobiography just seems more like a historical character yeah yeah I would that's what I I think it's a
0: more factual account yeah play-by-play factual account where a memoir
1: um injects more of the feeling into it
0: yeah humanizes it more
1: yes this is both He's a political figure, obviously. We had him on the podcast, episode mm-hmm. two hundred. Pete Buttigieg, shortest way home. It is a autobiography. It's a memoir. I said, I think I said this to him actually when we were recording. Uh, there's a small piece of me that hopes he loses presidential election, which he did, so he can go back to writing more books because this book is so beautiful. I mean, he just, of course, like he's, uh, he's a brilliant person, but. People don't write this way. Political memoirs are usually just garbage or they're ghost written, but this book, I'm gonna read the first sentence to you here. It's called The South Bend I Grew Up In. That's the first chapter. Dawn comes late here in the western limit of the eastern time zone, so, so far from the coast that our first sunrise of the year arrives after eight in the morning. Most January days are cloudy, making sun up a hidden and gradual process less a moment of daybreak than a cold shift away from the illuminated night in which the cloud ceiling and the snow cover reflect the sodium street lights between them into an orange glow so bright you can read the paper outside at four in the morning come on man that's that's not a political memoir that that's a that's a David Foster Wallace novel. I mean, it's unbelievable. And, but he does this throughout the book. It's not just its not just that first sentence. He he does this over and over and over. And Bex and I were in Sedona when I read this, and I could not put the thing down. It, that's the mark of a great book. A mm-hmm. unput, and by the way, when you do put it down, you can't wait to get back to it. That's what you want. As a writer, that's what you, what you want. As a reader, that's what you want.
0: And you're reflecting on it in your mind. And yeah. you're talking to others about it.
1: Yes, uh, another book by one of my favorite authors, Brett Easton Ellis, who I think the best nonfiction writing out there right now is the Brett is on is not writing or it's not reading. You can't read it at all. It's on his podcast, the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, which you, you're, it's only available on Patreon. It's Patreon only, and but it's worth every penny because he spends about forty minutes every other week on a written monologue. I think it's the best nonfiction writing out there right now. He has a new book that uh, came out last year, I think, called White, and it is it's a, it's a, some of the collections for, rewritten for a book. Um, but the podcast, it's him reading it, so it's like an audio book at the beginning of every podcast. Phenomenal. The, my favorite book of his. This isn't the book that was most profound to me. By the way, he's one of the three people that made me want to be a writer: um, Bradley Sonellas, Adrian McKinty, and um. Who's the third person? I'm totally blanking on this. Um, anyway, uh, Lunar Park is my favorite Brady Sinella's book, and this does some weird things.
0: Is that the first one you read no, by him?
1: No, my first one I read by him was Ameri- was American Psycho. Yeah, and it made me realize that you could do weird things with writing, and this one made me realize that you can mix Genres in a way. Adrian McKinty was like literary fiction, genre fiction. This was like Lunar Park is a is like Stephen King horror film mixed with autobiography, not autobiographical fiction, but autobiography. The main character of this book is Bready Stanellis, but it's not the real Bready Stanellis. It's a Bready Stanellis, <laughs> and you it's literary fiction. It's horror, Stephen King esque. It's almost like an homage to Stephen King. But then it's also, it blurs all of the lines, and it's such a great book. I gave this to Bex uh, maybe a year ago, and she could not put it down. It's such a good book. Lunar Park is my favorite book of his. Uh, you know him as the author of American Psycho, also Less Than Zero, uh, which he wrote, I think, in the end of high school, came out when he was in college, 85, I think, and set that whole world on fire he became part of the literary brat pack they called it him and mcinerney and laurie moore and Mm -hmm. um there's several others and in that in that sort of sphere of of cool writers but brady snellis is really the one who stood out to me and uh, made me realize some things that i didn't realize before um but yeah those two writers in particular um in fact, yeah, I said three. It really is too. I'm remembering this now because I thank both of them and love people use things on the, the acknowledgements page. I thank both Brett Easton Ellis and Adrian McKinty, for inspiring me to to sort of want to write to to, to, want to be a part of that exchange of consciousness. Because before then, I really was enjoying reading, and I was reading books like Infinite Jest, but. That one's, if you aspire to write something like that, you're probably never going to do it. Again, that's another book I don't recommend. I rarely recommend any of these books. In fact, those three books I say I buy by the case, those tend to be the only books I actually recommend. And if people say, well, but what books do you recommend? And my answer would be recommend for what? If you say, I wanna write a memoir, well, great. The Art of Memoir. Is probably a great book but I'm, if you have no interest in writing a memoir i wouldn't recommend that if you hate poetry i'm probably not going to recommend the sun and her flowers if you say i really enjoy poetry or i'm thinking about getting into poetry man this is this is the perfect on-ramp for me or if you're willing to consider poetry even i say pick it up read a page see what resonates with you if it doesn't put it down there's another thing there don't be ashamed to put down a, bu- a book you don't have to finish a book to read a book People ask me, have you read a book? I'll say, yeah, I've read it. They say, did you read the whole book? It's weird when people come up to me at like a tour stop and they're like, I re- read your whole book. What a weird thing. No one ever comes to me and says, I watched your whole film. Yeah. I get it, there's more work involved. Watching a film was more of a passive experience than reading a book. It's a spectrum. There are some books that are a lot more active. Writing a book is even more active. Listening to music can be passive, but singing along is active. Doing karaoke is more active. But fundamentally, there's a difference between reading a book and, and watching a film. Film is it tends to skew toward the more passive. Reading a book is, is more active. You have to pick it up and go through it. Mm-hmm. Listening to a book, though, can be more passive, right? And so there, there's also that perspective, Let's see here. We've thumbed, we've thumbed through some of my favorite books. Did I leave any out here? Anything I want. David Foster Wallace. Oh, there's a stack here. Nope. Nope. We're good. I feel great about that. Man, we had a bunch of questions here. We're way over on time, but let's try to lightning round some of these questions. I've got some surprise questions here. Nico says, I really love books. Love is capitalized here, but I learned to listen to audiobooks. How can I let go of the books that are already on my shelves? Well, congratulations. If you're enjoying the process of listening to books, then you probably don't need those books that are on your shelves. You can let them go unless you're going to reference them. So as we've said in the minimal episode, set up some rules that are appropriate for you. Might be the 90-90 rule, might be the one-year rule, but then be prepared to walk away and how do you do that? How do you get momentum? Let go of a book you know you're never gonna read. Start there. Pick one book. Do the minimal. If, let's say you have five hundred thousand books. Do the minimalism game with just your books. Day one of the month, get rid of one book. Just one. That's easy. Anyone can get rid of one book. Day two, get rid of two books. Day three, three books. So forth and so on. Denise has a question. This is really hard, she says some of these books are my best friends. I've read and reread them. I donate anything that A, I have not read and I'm unlikely to read in the near future, or B, any reference book that might be helpful for students. So you've set some rules up for yourself. This is great. If you're going to keep reading and rereading these books, I'm going to say fine. I think Tony Robbins might say get a life if you keep rereading the same book over and over and over. I've heard him say that about DVDs before. He's like, who who here he's like at a speaking event, who here watches the same movie over and over? He says, Get a fucking life. Now, I I'm not gonna be that harsh. I, I appreciate the sentiment. And sometimes I need to be picked up and shaken. Because if I was just rereading The Pale King over and over and over and over and over, I'd probably get something out. And by the way, the first time I read Infinite Jest, I was 26 years old. I was in Sedona, Arizona, strangely. uh, That's where I read The Shortest Way Home. And that's where I started reading it, I should say. And I remember it vividly. But diving into it now, it's a different experience. 15 or whatever, 13, 14 years later. It's a totally different experience. So sometimes you'll get something new out of the book. But by the way, that copy of Infinite Jest I read, 26, is a different copy from the copy I have now. And it's okay. I let it go. I let someone else use it. When I decided to pick it back up, I was able to do that. I could find it used for a few bucks. was not a big deal. Or you could find it in any of the books that I've written for free at your library. And if they don't have it in your library, they're happy to accommodate you you're a local patron, you're a member of the community they wanna help you out. They'll they'll usually order the book that you want, including any of the uh, four books that I've written, uh, including my novel. So yes, some of these books are your best friends. I'd probably start using different language. I understand what you're trying to say there, but they are just things. The experiences are great. That's why we have the books, but the book itself is an inanimate object it's only animate when you actually use the book. But if you're using them, great. Then don't feel the pressure to have to let go of your books. Jane says, how do you let go of the books that you're planning to read, but don't have the luxury of time to read it? (laughs) I think I'm the biggest book hoarder, she says. Yeah, so planning to read, the luxury of time. Fascinating way to put it, right? The stories we tell ourselves are fascinating. We all have the same 24 hours in a day. What you're really telling me is that you have priorities that are different from reading books. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe some of those priorities are justified. Got to go to work to pay the bills. Okay. Well, what does that really mean? Well, having a car is a bigger priority than, than, because I got to pay the bills. What what bills do I have? I have a car payment. Well, okay. If you got rid of your car payment, could you read more books maybe? I don't know. So you prioritize having a car more over having books. That's a potential, right? Or having an expensive car yeah, versus a, a beater that you can get around from point A to point B in. You know, there's a difference between a, a Lexus and a Toyota Camry. It's called $60,000. That's the difference. And uh, I know because I've owned both. And, and so, yeah, Jane, what do you prioritize in that th- those 24 hours? But I'd probably let go of those books if you're being honest with yourself. You're not going to read them. Or you can reprioritize your time and actually read those books. Kate says, book clutter? Is that for real? Is there such a thing? I beg to differ. Several people said this when I tweeted out on Twitter, at JFM, if you want to follow me, by the way. But I tweeted this out. I said, hey, any questions about book clutter? And people were like, well, there's no such thing. It's the one thing that's not clutter." I, and I agree to a certain extent, it can be beautiful. In fact, I don't like anything on our walls at home. You, you, you notice this if you have seen our apartment tour. I generally have very few things, if anything, on the walls. But we have these two vertical bookshelves. Some of you ask, by the way, uh, where do I get them from? Um, design within reach. But a bookshelf is not going to make you read more or less. But it's a functional piece of art for us it also adds a pop of color because the spines of books stick out and you get to see all this different color there. a Pop of color to our otherwise rather monochrome living room. Book clutter, is that for real? Only if it's for real for you. I think there's a difference between book collecting and and, and book clutter. A well curated collection, curated being the key here, can be useful. Book clutter actually gets in the way of the books we want to read NLB says, if we mark up physical books as we read them, should we just toss them if they are becoming clutter? Or should we feel okay with selling or donating them? Oh my gosh, don't just throw them out. It's one of my favorite things. When I go to the last bookstore downtown, Sean, and I go to that maze of books they have upstairs, they have like these $1 books, and they're sorted by color, meaning Books with red spines are in this (laughs) section. Books with blue spines or black spines or white spines or yellow spines are in these sections. And I'll pop open a book. I saw Freedom there recently. It was a dollar for Freedom. Of course, I felt compelled to buy it, but I already have a copy of Freedom, so I'm not just going to buy it for a dollar. But man, I popped it open and I really wanted to buy it. I still didn't. I, I restrained myself because there was there were all these underlying parts and I'm like, Oh, I get to see what resonates with someone else. It's not just an exchange of consciousness between me and the author. It's also an exchange of consciousness between me and the other reader, which by the way, is what makes Kindle so valuable because of the popular highlights. If you have those turned on, not only do I have the highlights that I've highlighted in a book, but if I'm reading a book, it'll also show me the lines that other people have highlighted, you know, popular highlights, not everything that's been highlighted in a book, but the most popular highlights, what's really resonating with other people. And what's fascinating about that is sometimes I really agree with it. Sometimes I'm like, why does so many people underline this line? That one doesn't stand out to me at all. And there are others that aren't popular highlights. And I'm like, that's the line. This is the line everyone should be highlighting. I'm highlighting it in my Kindle as well. And as an author, that's really helpful because I can see I can't see what you highlight specifically. They don't share that sort of, sort of you know, personalized granular data, but I can see what's a popular highlight in my books as well. And uh, people are uh, giving me feedback sort of indirectly as an author. I can see what resonates with people. And I love that as an author. I love that experience of uh, that, that other kind of exchange. I'm getting feedback from people, right? Love people. I love the feedback I'm getting from, from these people. Charlotte says, would you discuss the paralysis that happens when one member of the household has read a good book and the others say they want to read it and put, put it (laughs) and put it somewhere for someday and then read their own good book and offer it to others. And no one can decide when everyone has read any given book. Sounds like you have too many books in your household and you probably need to set up some sort of rule and come to an agreement with the rest of your family. Hey, I'm going, I finished reading this book. I'm going to leave it here for people to read over the course of the next 90 days. Now you can have an organizational system where you have this shelf has the books that I finished that I'm going to read and uh, that that other people can read. And here, this next shelf has my husband or my daughter's books that they've read that we can now read. And eventually you have a process. They make their way to the donation bin when you're all said and done, because right now what's happening is you're just piling up. It's not a laziness thing. It's just having a a good system in place. So you know what is what you're not going to get value from it, though, if it just sits there collecting dust. All right. Let's talk to Kelly. Do you keep books with personalized signatures? I feel obligated to keep books I don't want anymore because there's a statement written, written to me. I no longer attend book signings because of this. Is it disrespectful to recirculate books that were gifts? Uh, no, it's, it's absolutely not disrespectful. In fact, the only thing that's disrespectful here is no longer attending book signings. That hurts people like me significantly. It hurts my feelings. But also, it doesn't really just hurt me. It mostly hurts you because you're missing out on an amazing experience. Ryan and I actually don't personalize books unless someone absolutely wants us to, but we make it a practice to not personalize a book to someone. We'll sign it for you. But as we sign it and we hand the book back to someone, we say, hey, when this stops adding value, please minimize it. Find another home for this book because it's not going to do you any good sitting on your shelf. So no, absolutely pass them on. What an exciting thing to go to a bookstore and find an autographed book that I get to read or an underlined book that you've, that you've underlined, pass those books on. If someone gave you a gift of a book, why did they give it to you? Because they want to add value to your life. If the book has stopped adding value to your life, they want you to pass it on because they know you can add value to someone else's life, but you also get value from contribution. That's the gift that keeps on giving. So no, it's not disrespectful. In fact, it'd be disrespectful not to pass it on. Martino says, no matter how big your book collection, it always will be such a tiny fraction of all the books that there are, not to mention all the books and texts that have got lost throughout history. Just keep the few you go back to regularly and leave the rest of the space for new books. Some good feedback there. No matter how big your book collection, it will always be a tiny fraction of all the books that exist. Think about it that way. We're all, you know, not all, but many of us are completists. I want to have the, the full, the comprehensive book collection. There's no such thing. Mm. You can't have every book. You could have the largest library in the world. The largest library in the world doesn't have every book. And they're curators, professional curators. You can let go of that desire. To be a completist, Becky says, I love to read and mark up my books heavily. If something resonates or is meaningful, I underline and add notes. I frequently reference, occasionally reread my notes, and it's one of the sweetest joys in my life. How can I let go of them, given their surefire source of instantaneous joy? I question the use of the word joy here, although I think it's quite possible your books do bring you joy. My definition of joy involves other people. Other people have to be involved, either directly or indirectly. But with a book, other people are involved. There is an author of that book. There is joy. And there's usually characters involved as well, fiction or nonfiction. So I think joy can be created there. Uh, The word you're you're talking about is contentment or happiness, I think. And uh, you can experience happiness by picking up one of these books. And how can you let, basically what you're saying, if it resonates and it's meaningful to me, I reread them occasionally. It's one of the sweetest joys of my life. How can I let go of the sweetest joy of my life? Well, why would you do that? If you have a compelling reason to do it, great. To make room for other joys, new experiences, wonderful. But I'm not compelling you to get rid of your books. Man, that, uh, I don't want you I think you're complete in an empty room, but I don't want you to go to an empty room and sulk because you've removed things that do as Marie Kondo would say, spark joy. Corey, last question here. Recently, against my eternal love of books, I decided to get a Kindle to do my reading. See this this question presupposes that Kindle books aren't books. But they're literally e-books. Audiobooks are audio books. And jokingly, during the minimal, I'll often say, "We'll give you the audiobook, the ebook, or the book book," meaning the print book. Uh, but they're just different mediums. They're all books, though. I honestly prefer reading on the Kindle, but sometimes I wonder if I'll ever have a reason to hold a paper book again. Well, I think we gave you Sean, and I talked about the the reasons, the tactile experience. But bravo to you if you can go 100% Kindle. It's probably better for the environment. It's probably cheaper for you as well. And so, if you don't feel compelled to have any print books. I think it's probably a better option. And I tried to, and for many years, several years, I went hundred percent Kindle and I found that for some books I did miss the tactile experience. In fact, I had a new experience. There's a third or fourth way. Uh, you have print books, you have audio books, you have eBooks. And then Rob Bell's book came out, uh, the new one, Everything is Spiritual. before his publishers sent us the advanced copies, because we got to read it before it came out, they sent me a pdf of the book and i didn't want to read on just a pdf on my phone cuz it's hard to read and i didn't want to read a book on my computer and so i printed out the pdf here at the co-working space that we're at and i printed out the whole thing two-sided and it's a long 330 page book it might have been my new favorite experience for reading a book. Because here, so I'm reading these, these pages like this, but it's a stack. But what, here's what I could do. I could pick up a stack of 10 pages. And so it's not weighing me down like a heavy book or even like my Kindle. Um, that's, here's the downside to a Kindle. This book here that I'm holding, How to Be Here, I just picked up a random book. This book will never run out of batteries. Mm-hmm. This one does sometimes mm-hmm. if I don't charge it. Uh, So there are downsides to having a Kindle. I think by and large, the upsides are far greater and I enjoy eBooks slightly better than print books. Most of the time, I probably read most of my books on an eBook, but when I got Rob Bell's book, everything is spiritual printed it out. I was able to take 10 pages at once and just go sit on the couch and Then I'd flip through them, and I'd underline stuff if I wanted to, and I'd put it back in my stack. I'd pick up 10 more pages, go over to the chair, uh, read that for a little bit, uh, pick up 10 more pages, go to the dining room table. And we started this new ritual when we were reading Rob Bell's book. Uh, right after dinner time, me and Ella and Bex, we would just read a few pages out loud of the book and talk about some of the people in there, the lessons that we we learned. And so I think the, that's the beautiful thing about books. This is a great place to, to wrap up here is the shared experience that we have, whether it's with the author, with sharing the book with people that we care about, not thrusting upon someone. That's one of the worst things you can do is say, hey, you need to read this. But when someone come in, comes to you for recommendations, And you're able to add value to their life you're able to because then what happens afterward i remember the first time i shared freedom with sean Mahalik. and i started rereading it as he was reading it the first time and i'm texting we're texting back and forth lines from the book and this stands out to me this resonates and i'm sharing this whole new experience but in a different way all over again or if i'm reading out loud to Ella and Bex after dinner, that's a, a family experience. Or almost every night, Bex and I we pick up a, a Kindle book, and we read a chapter of. It. i But I read it out to to her out loud until she starts falling asleep. She she starts twitching like crazy. She like starts convulsing until I know she's starting to to go to sleep. And. It's like I'm reading her to sleep. It's a nighttime story, right? And the you know, we'll also read stories to Ella before, you know, as she gets gets in bed, we'll mm-hmm. pick out one of her books and read something from the Wild Kratz or some other children's story that she finds value in, that she enjoys, and it puts her to sleep as well. And so it's more than just the solitude, the solitary experience. It's more than solitary confinement. Although books are great for that as well. But it opens up a whole new world in the real world for you to share these experiences with other people. And that's the opposite of clutter. That's, that's real value. We want to read more. We don't want to own more books. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. Podcast Sean. You can follow him at Podcast Sean on social media, Instagram. At Jordan No More. Thank you as well. I appreciate it. To all you patrons, thank you so much for your support. You keep us ad-free. You keep us in the studio. You keep Podcast Sean's children fed. Thank you. And Jordan No More's pet crocodile, whatever he has.
2: I have a cat, but he might as well be a crocodile.
1: (laughs) All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time.
0: The minimalists. (laughs) mm <laughs>